When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. And one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how, through craft, that idea is made manifest. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Rebecca Solnit, author of the nonfiction book Orwell's Roses. We all know what Orwell is against, but this is a book about what Orwell was for. We'll be back with Rebecca Solnit after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show in the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. 
I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is writer, historian, and activist Rebecca Solnit. She is the author of more than 20 books on feminism, Western and indigenous history, popular power, social change and insurrection, wandering and walking, hope and disaster, including Whose Story Is This?, Call Them by Their True Names, Cinderella Liberator, Men Explain Things to Me, The Mother of All Questions, and Hope in the Dark, among others. She is a columnist at The Guardian and a regular contributor to Literary Hub. Her new book is Orwell's Roses, which is an exploration of roses, pleasure, politics, and a fresh take of George Orwell as an avid gardener whose political writing was grounded in his passion for the natural world. We began the interview with me asking Rebecca Solnit this question. One of the things that struck me so much about Orwell's Roses was that it was a book about the pastoral and politics. Does that sound right? It does. It does. And I hope it's a very pleasurable book that's also about totalitarianism, lies, and propaganda. There's a sense that engaging with politics is eating your spinach. And But I don't think it's always so separate from the champagne and cream puffs. And Orwell's life bears this out in a certain way. At uh, yeah, pastoral and politics. And of course, in this day and age of climate chaos and ecological collapse, the pastoral is absolutely the key site for our politics and our tendency to think nature is apolitical, outside the political, um, decorative, frivolous, lightweight, is part of how we've failed to deal with these crises. It seems like you found your way in through roses, that they were anchoring you, and also Orwell. So when you began to start thinking about formulating this collection, what what was on your mind? Um, two little correctives, one of which is I think of it as a united whole. I posted a rant recently about how often books that are not um, very linear and chronological in nonfiction are seen as collections in a way that we wouldn't call, you know, War and Peace a collection of chapters or so forth. So, so, but then also it happened as I recount in the book, all of a sudden, and the book begins with the sentence in the year 1936, a writer planted roses and then describes how I come, came to meet what may be, although we're not certain the roses that in fact, George Orwell planted in 1936 and encountering them directly, in the course of a slightly different errand was really a stunning and wonderful experience for me. I had known the essay called A Good Word for the Vicar of Bray in which Orwell recounts planting those roses and fruit trees, but it was only in encountering these big shaggy roses blooming on November 2nd, Day of the Dead, 2017, that I began to think 
the fact that he planted roses raises so many questions, including about who he is, because the conventional version of Orwell is that he's this grim, austere, um, kind pessimistic figure, you know, joylessly prophesying Big Brother's, you know, boot grinding down your face forever. And meeting the roses prompt, you know, I knew as soon as I met the roses that this was kind of what I'd been looking for. And I had been looking for a, a meeting, a conjunction so rich and evocative, pointing in so many directions, I could build a whole book around it. And I had thought it would be two people. I've certainly written two other books that have similar conjunctions that fueled a lot of the book in them. And uh, I didn't know it was going to be between a, um, a man and some flowers or some flowering plants. And roses, of course, are one of the key emblems of beauty, particularly in the Western world and femininity and, you know, flowers in general are very tied to Valentin's paintings and notions of mortality and ephemerality. So the sheer emblematicness of roses also made it very compelling. Although sometimes I wrote about roses as such, as for example, when I went to visit the brutal rose growing industry that supplies the American market um, from outside Bogota, Colombia. Sometimes roses were going to stand in for the plant kingdom for or for flowering plants and their role in the atmosphere, the creation of the world we inhabit, the sustenance of our daily lives. And um, But it's also very much a book about plants. You can say that the roses gave me Oh, a startling, at least for me, way to approach Orwell. But Orwell gave me a startling way to approach uh, roses as emblems, as plants, as part of the plant kingdom, as part of the natural uh, or um, biospheric world. When you start thinking about writing essays and you start thinking about Orwell and roses and you have so many different ideas, how do you start? technically and intellectually, like selecting where you want certain thoughts to go. And once I met those roses on November 2nd, 2017, and knew I wanted to do a book, the first thing I had to do was to dive back into Orwell. I had read a huge, you know, I'd read his most of his novels. I'd read 1984 and Animal Farm repeatedly. I knew some of his essays extremely well, quite a lot of them. He'd been a huge influence on me, but I had never read a biography, never read his diaries and letters. So I knew him as a writer, but not really the person behind. So it really began by plunging into that. And that was really how I found a lot of the patterns. And I was just mildly snarky about the book being called a collection. We think of books being organized linearly as progressions, as temporal narratives, as with a biography or history that begins, you know, in 1776 and ends in 1830, you know, or whatever. But I think another great organizing strategy for a book, um, I think of sometimes as like a, a hub, like the hub of a wheel, and then this one was going to have seven spokes, seven forays, um, seven directions. I went from the fundamental act of this particular person planting this particular plant. 
And it allowed me to think about the man himself, but also about Stalinism and totalitarianism, about the phrase bread and roses, about the politics of gardens and colonialism, which allowed a digression into Jamaica Kincaid's work, which I love and have learned so much from in her brilliant anti-colonial writing about gardens and flowers and plants and plant names. Uh, it allowed me to read 1984, which I'd read many times before and thought I knew in a completely fresh way. So it really was like these seven, you know, you could think of it almost as a literal thing, seven, seven ventures and seven directions from the same doorstep or the same, same garden threshold. And uh, so that was the organizing method. It was really about finding what were, what did the ideas coalesce around? The other wonderful thing about this encounter with Orwell's Roses was that these, in many cases, were topics I'd wanted to think about for a long time. What is the relationship between pleasure and beauty and, you know, our highest um, vocations and politics? How do we reincorporate recognizing that the natural world is a deeply political space and what we do and how we understand it is deeply political. You know, what are we fighting for when we fight for these political things? One of the very astute comments someone made is that we all know what Orwell is against, but this is a book about what Orwell was for. And, you know, and of course you have to know what you're for. It's very easy for activists. And I've spent my adult life among activists to become obsessive about what they're against in a way that often allows them to kind of become it, to become angry and destructive because you began by opposing what's angry and destructive. And one of the beautiful things about Orwell is that he always held close what he was for, domestic pleasure, um, you know, beauty, um, the sort of moral beauty and the beauty of language as well as you know, the literal beauty of flowers in the natural world, um, his pleasures and et cetera. And of course the privacy, human rights and freedom that allow us to choose what our pleasures are. We often have authoritarian regimes that decide we should have pleasure, but that they will decide what they are and control them very intently, which becomes no pleasure at all. So in a way, this is a, this is a book um, about what Orwell was for and what he was for these things very passionately. I love how you said in the very first essay that gardens are the opposite of war. It was not something I ever thought about, but once you, I read that, I was like, of course, of course they are. There's a wonderful book that Trinity University Press published some years ago, Gardens of Resistance, and it's about Jap interned Japanese-Americans, Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto, and other people in dire circumstances planting gardens as part of their psychic survival. But in a sense, war is about violent destruction and ad adversarial relations. There's a very funny way Michael Pollan in the book that preceded The Botany of Desire talks about thinking gardening would be very full of sweetness and cooperation and realizing he's going to war against um, you know, we, weeds and gophers and pests and things like that. There's a certain amount of aggression in the garden, but also a garden is ultimately about bringing forth life and about cooperating with other species, about a kind of stability and endurance and survival and persistence that's very different than the destructiveness of war. 
you know, and it is complicated. Of course, the history of the United States is about taking away Native American land through war that we would then cultivate, as well as claiming because they weren't cultivating their land and they weren't the true owners of it, from planting street trees in inner city neighborhoods to biocolonialism to taking land for agricultural purposes. Farming and gardening can also be acts of aggression. But I think at its best, gardens bring forth life and sustenance and beauty and continuity, and that is the opposite of war. So that's also something I take up in a later section of the book is that Orwell was very much an Englishman. The English gardening tradition is not unconnected to English colonialism, um, the enclosure acts that drove so many of the poor people of England, Ireland, and Scotland off their lands and turned them into either displaced urban workers or the immigrants um, who would populate, uh, you know, other other continents and islands. And, uh, you know, so I'd wanted to not lose sight of the moral complexity of you know, what, what we do in the plant kingdom. In your segment on the price of roses in, in one of your essays, your, it was in your essay in praise of, yeah. you know, as you're talking about the dichotomy that we live with, right? We get these beautiful roses from these factories mm-hmm. in Colombia where people are, are suffering greatly. And you talk about something that Lawrence Wexler said that pleasure meaning art can fortify us, that it's not seducing us away from the tasks at hand. It's not telling us that all of these things we need to fight for don't matter, but they help rise us up. And it was really beautiful. And I think it was something also in Orwell's life that you were pointing to. Yeah, there's an essay by Lawrence Weschler that has been a huge landmark for me. I reference essays by other people as well in this book, and of course, value Orwell most as an essayist in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, Weschler in his beautiful Vermeer in Bosnia begins by going, you know, he was a New Yorker journalist who covered human rights abuses, authoritarian regimes, et cetera. And he was covering the Bosnian war crimes tribunals in which you had to hear horrific stories about genocide, torture, rape, murder, um, neighbors doing this to neighbors. And he asked the judge how he could bear to listen to this month after month, year after year. And the judge in The Hague pauses for a moment and then his face brightens and he says, oh, after work, I go to the museum and look at the Vermeers. And I absolutely love that because this book in some ways is very much written against a lot of the austerity of the left, which Orwell took on himself, literally he talks about a woman writing to him and saying flowers are bourgeois, which essentially means that beauty is bourgeois, pleasure is bourgeois. And, uh, you know, and there's often a sense on the left that the only art that matters is this angry, exhortatory, look how ugly it is. Things like, I think of the painter Suko painting uh, animal torture or, you know, Picasso's Guernica or something. The assumption is that we're not yet as engaged as we should be and we need to be kind of chastised, awakened, hounded into being fully engaged. But there's actually a lot of people who are fully engaged already and what feeds them? You know, if you sit in the Hague all day listening to war crime stories, you don't really need to go look at Guernica. You're 
kind of hearing it every day. So what do you need to look at? For this guy, it's Vermeer. And of course, we know that, you know, Nazis love forests, that the same thing might give aid and comfort to somebody doing utterly horrible things. Uh, there's a famous scene in the movie Brazil modeled after Orwell's 1984, where the torturer has his child in one room and is torturing somebody in the next, and he's able to cut back and forth between being kindly indulgent dad, you know, and intensifying the agony of the prisoner he's, uh, he's torturing. But I do think that there's something extraordinary to Vermeer in Bosnia saying, maybe what fortifies us is beauty in some way. But I also think what you might get from a Vermeer which Washer points out was painted in a time itself of strife and war and conflict is a sense of serenity that might steady you. But I also think these exhortatory things, these straightforward pieces of propaganda might tell us what to go do in a very specific way, you know, stop bombing Cambodia to recall a phrase from my childhood, you know, stop funding fossil fuel to recall one from right now. But I think that what we bring to our political engagement is a much deeper sense of self, our sense of meaning, of values, of who we are, of where we are in the world, of what the world is made of, you know, our values in deeper ways, our sense of self, our ability to engage with ambiguity, ambivalence, complexity. These are all really important things for being a political being, and we won't get them from a Save the Whales bumper sticker necessarily, that we might get them from thinking really hard about whales, whether it's Moby Dick or one of the extraordinary recent books about whales. And so I think we also have to think about art as forming the self who becomes an engaged citizen, a conscientious human being, a deep soul, a person with a capacity for witness and empathy, that we actually want art to do something much more complex to make us. And the great art, you know, in my book, makes us people capable of engaging in these deep ways, makes us conscientious, makes us aware, teaches us to imagine being people other than ourselves, to be a child, a person born into slavery, a person in a completely different kind of body or gender or situation. And so we want much more from art than this kind of, you know, exhortatory, you know, stop the bad things, support the good things. And that's, I think, what Weschler's calling our attention to. And it's certainly what Orwell is doing. He has plenty of stuff about the fact that Stalinism, totalitarianism, propaganda lies you know, sloppiness in language, human rights violations are very bad things and calling attention to ways and places in which those were not sufficiently attended to. But he's also mounting other arguments, beautiful arguments about what he's for, including what I found to be a kind of moral beauty that even more, I think, than the beauty of the natural world, he values the beauty of language used honestly and clearly to cut away delusion and expose cruelty and dishonesty. And so, you know, the book is in part an argument for complexity and drawing on Orwell, but also drawing on my own interests on other essayists, on people like Jamaica Kincaid and Octavia Butler and Lawrence Weschler 
in our uh, Adam Haas shield in our own time. And uh, just, you know, following where those roses or well-planted led me. When you're writing about such complexity and, you know, your life of activism and feeling so passionate about these issues that can be really hard to think about and talk about, what fortifies you? I'm so, he's, you know, I maybe I'm over reading Orwell because it's some of the same things. And, uh, you know, when I'm not writing, uh, cooking, going to the farmer's market uh, and spending time in the natural world, I'm a runner, hiker, rower, camper. I'm actually just back from spending a week in what was Lake Powell, but as Lake Powell shrinks, is turning back into Glen Canyon and the sublime beauty even in a place that's so profoundly altered and damaged by being by you know a river and a canyon being turned into one of the largest reservoirs in this country you know now full of litter and silt even then it was so beautiful and seeing the stars every night in a really remote place during the dark of the moon was so beautiful so those kinds of things and then also what sustains me is deep friendships and relationships um, you know, the the friendships with my adult friends, the kids in my family, my godson whose birthday, um, the wonderful Atlas is Saturday and who I'll be spending the day with and probably baking the cake for. And so these kinds of things, you know, and I have not always that consciously, but always made some room for cultivating these pleasures. And then also books themselves and reading, AO and beautiful writing also sustains me. And that brings me back to the work in ways. I was reading two poems by Gabriel Calvo Caressi, one of the great poets of our time, yesterday and today. And I read poetry a lot because a lot of the work I do involves reading like climate science reports and newspapers and journalists and climate scientists, Twitter feed and stuff that can really flatten out your prose style. And so I read poetry for its own sake, but I always feel like it's awakening me again to what language can do, how language can soar and fly and not just kind of clump across the earth in heavy boots. In, in your second to last essay, you went back to 1984 and you'd said that was part of your, your process of writing this and you found, you know, new things and new perspectives. And I think books do that because it's like a meeting of where you are in the world and you think it's this static book, but it's not. So I wanted to ask you just about your experience of coming to it again and seeing things new and what you think that alchemy is. Yeah, no, I absolutely love that experience, although it has its downside. I think a lot of us have reread books and seen films that we used to love, and because we're much more cued into abuses of power and unequal relationships, misogyny, racism, homophobia, mocking non-standard bodies, the old, the young, the foreign. We see in movies like 16 Candles, Pretty in Pink, um, Purple Rain, a lot of nastiness um, we might have been oblivious to the first time around. So going back is not always great, but sometimes it is. I wrote an essay I'm very fond of about the movie Giant, which I've seen first saw in my early 20s, I think on its like 30th or 40th anniversary 
I turned 70, I think in 2016. And it was fascinating to see what a different movie it was every time as I came to understand more and more layers of this movie. That's about the economic evolution of Texas from cattle to oil, about, you know, the, the subtext of three of Hollywood's very gay men kind of orbiting around each other very tensely, about Elizabeth Taylor as a feminist superhero. And gradually I came to realize about what it takes to, for two strong personalities to have an enduring marriage. In 1984, I had read when I was very young, had reread for various purposes. And I think most people if asked, including me before this project, would say that it's a book in which Winston Smith, the protagonist, you know, has some adventures, a love affair, rebels against Big Brother in various ways, and is caught and tortured and brainwashed into submission. And it's a very grim book. Rereading it after finding this unexpected Orwell, this Orwell who loved flowers and gardening and animals, including his goats and chickens and a dog named Marx, and, uh, you know, who was a passion, so passionate a fisherman, he died with a fishing rod in his room and uh, in his hospital room, that um, the pleasure is a lot of what Winston pursues. It opens with him pulling out where the um, surveillance cameras on the two-way TVs can't see him, writing in a book who's very, an old, old blank book whose creamy paper, um, is described as this kind of luscious, sensuous thing. And I love it that the first beautiful thing is, you know, paper itself, a book, and the act of writing. And then he has this love affair, Goes they go off into a landscape he's dreamed about. It was also surprising what a dreamy book it was, because it's often thought of as a kind of harsh realist novel. But things Winston dreams about become come true, and it feels so much more subjective. They know his thoughts more than even the kind of surveillance technology they had then, which is so much more primitive than Google and Facebook and your iPhone and their ability to monitor your thoughts and actions and movements and connections and purchases. And, um, but yeah, and so, you know, there's a lot of beauty in it. What Winston is rebelling against Big Brother, but not by successfully striking blows against the regime, but by cultivating space for erotic love, for emotional attachment, for beauty itself, for pleasure in the natural world, for breaking out of the rules of what you're supposed to do and not do, for cherishing old things, the book, uh, a, pa a glass paperweight with a bit of coral in it. And ultimately this remarkable passage, which had never really hit me before, or um, Winston Smith is having a love affair. They're carrying on in the upstairs bedroom with a great old mahogany bed that belongs to the antiques dealer from who he got the first, the blank journal with the beautiful paper and then the coral paperweight. And, um, and out the window three times over uh, in the narrative is a big stout middle-aged woman hanging out diapers and singing this beautiful cock, uh, contralto voice, but, you know, singing a song that he says is trash with a Cockney accent, but still 
you know, and at one point he says she could have been there for a thousand years. And she comes across as like this great earth goddess, this great life force of fecundity and uh, strength. And, you know, the diapers represent the future, the life that's just beginning, you know, and nurture. The song is about love and memory. And so she's putting back the pieces that the mind control of that world has really broken apart. She's a whole person. And Winston keeps saying over and over again, if there's hope, it lies with the proles. Because often people think, oh, Winston fails, is defeated, is destroyed. Therefore, the book is pessimistic. Margaret Atwood has her own wonderful reading of why the book isn't pessimistic, which I agree with. But also, if hope lies with the proles, here's this prole woman who is such a robust you know, divine force. And he sees her singing at the, just before big, you know, the thought police are going to break in and take him away to prison and torture and destruction. And he sees her. And this also feels like a breakthrough for Orwell, who is not, does have strong female characters with independent thoughts and lives, but is not particularly a feminist where, you know, he sees, Winston thinks to himself that maybe this middle-aged woman is actually beautiful with the beauty of the rose hip and not the rose. And it was stunning to find that the key metaphor in what for me is a central passage of this book is about roses. And one thing I've been writing about forever, at least since my my fourth book, A Book of Migrations, is how much the natural world gives us the metaphorical richness of our language, the way to understand one thing in terms of another, without which our consciousness is flattened out. Uh, it might be why I repair to the natural world. It's certainly something Orwell seemed to get from the natural world. You know, Animal Farm is an entire allegory based on the characteristics of barnyard animals um, illustrating the corruption of the Soviet revolution. And um, so it was just stunning to find roses as a, you know, the rose and the rose hip as a pivotal metaphor, you know, in this affirmation of stout, childbearing, middle-aged, diaper-hanging, working-class, you know, divine femininity in the book and the sense that he's being taken away, but she's gonna keep singing and keep hanging out those diapers and supporting this new life. So that was just extraordinary and a completely unexpected reading. It's nice to know that we can meet ourselves in new ways. That is a wonderful way to put it because we meet ourselves in how we interpret a book. And of course we attribute it to the author. Oh, this author is very pessimistic. Oh, this author is very clever. Oh, this author is just like me. Oh, this author doesn't make sense. And then as we change, we find other things in them because of course I once wrote, I think in uh, far, the far way nearby, a book is a heart that only beats in the chest of another. A book is like a musical score. You as the reader perform it, which gives you a huge amount of leeway for interpretation for how you're imagining, you know, the roses and the rose hip and the, the, red, the red stout woman singing for how you 
you know, you bring all those things to life in your imagination. When I was young, people used to talk about how imaginative listening to the radio was where you had to make your own images versus television. And of course, reading is more so. I think there's some media, notably film, and here I might add, fuck virtual reality, um, in which a great deal of it is handed to you. You get sound and image and see what people look like. You know, there's been funny attempts at smell-o-vision and vibrating theaters and stuff to make it even more real. But other work, you have to bring a lot of, uh, you know, it feels like some work meets you 90% of the way and very little is, is demanded of your imagination. Other work demands a huge amount of you and a huge amount of interpretation and imagination, which is part of what I love about books is that it is a meeting of minds. And so, yeah, Different Mind met 1984 when I had met Orwell's Roses and wrote this book. So you write about this idea of saculum, which is a span of time lived by the oldest person present and then their living memory. So there's like a, a start and end to that. I think about that a lot personally, like with the Holocaust, that when there's people not here anymore who don't remember it, how that changes history. And you were able to go and see these these roses where he lived. And so you're kind of still in that saculum of time. But I wanted to, of his life, and I wanted to ask you just about this concept. It's so beautiful and devastating at the same time. This book began really with me looking for Orwell's fruit trees because my friend Sam Green, the filmmaker and father of my godson Atlas, thought he might be doing a project about trees and what and we I love trees. I might love them for different reasons than him, but we for years we were sending back and forth cool things we ran across about trees, you know, uh, news stories, photographs, scientific tidbits and things like that. And um, I think one of the things we both loved about trees was just their longevity. Of course, I'm a Californian. We have trees, you know, bristle cones that are 5,000 years up in the mountains. We have, you know, sequoias that are, and uh, redwoods that are over 2,000 years old. And, um, you know, the coast redwoods is sequoias in the uh, mid-level Sierra. And trees have always felt to me like these kind of enduring witnesses, these beings that are so much more long-lived and stable and steady than us, you know, so trees bring a different kind of saculum. And the original idea of the saculum is when an event is still in living memory and the Holocaust is just barely in living memory. I know some people like my friend, the um, civil rights lawyer, Walter Riley, who as children remembered people born in slavery, you know, that I, I have been corresponding with Quentin Kopp, um, who's the son of Orwell's civil uh, Spanish Civil War commander. And I believe he must have known Orwell when he was a small child. And, uh, you know, I have heard Orwell's adopted son, Richard Blair, speak and may have more interaction with him. I know he just got a copy of this book. So there are human beings who are still in Orwell's saculum, uh, you know, or whose saculum includes Orwell, but not so, not so many of them left. And, uh, you know, so that was part of the excitement of encountering the roses is that, you know, at the time it felt like here are these living beings that Orwell himself planted and tended this kind of direct and living relationship to somebody I thought was remote the way that, you know, Shakespeare or Thoreau or, 
you know, somebody might be not somebody I would have this kind of direct living contact with. There is now a bit more doubt cast upon the origin of those roses by the people in the cottage. Um, then when I wrote the book, they communicated that to me as we we're going to press and I jumped in to throw in some modifiers, but you know, and um, so, yeah, so the saculum was, was an idea and that I think part of what plants give us is this different sense of time. It's kind of funny when you bring it up this way that, you know, Vanitas paintings, which were such a part of 17th century Dutch painting and the kind of post-Renaissance European tradition, flowers were these symbols of ephemerality. I don't know how much people painted trees as the opposite, but trees really endure. And that is one of the lovely things about them. And so, of course, I went looking for the fruit trees, which had been cut down and found the roses, which had not. And, uh, you know, entered a kind of saculum. But these other time scales of plants, the plants that sequester carbon that stabilizes and our atmosphere encounters what we human beings do when we burn, uh, you know, fossil fuels or wood or when our bad behavior causes the forest fires that are throwing so much carbon up into the atmosphere. You know, the, the, the Carboniferous era, these, these other roles of plants also spoke to kind of the shape of time as well. Is there any essay you want to talk about or anything else you want to say before we get to the final questions? You had asked me to um, read a passage from something that had really influenced me and something I might have gone to, even if this wasn't a book about Orwell and his roses, is a passage from his wonderful essay, While I, Why I Write. Although every time I reread it, I'm like, this is such a messy essay, you know, parts of it are sort of grumpy, parts of it just seem very almost hastily written. And then one passage in it, when I read it when I was young, became kind of a credo for me. It expressed kind of what some of what I wanted to do myself and just, but also struck me as such a beautiful and deeply personal and eccentric way to describe what it means to be a political writer. So he writes, what I have most wanted to do throughout the past 10 years is to make political writing into an art. My starting point is always a feeling of partisanship, a sense of injustice. When I sit down to write a book, I do not say to myself, I am going to produce a work of art. I write it because there is some lie that I want to expose, some fact to which I want to draw attention, and my initial concern is to get a hearing. But I could not do the work of writing a book or even a long magazine article if it were not also an aesthetic experience. Anyone who cares to examine my work will see that even when it is downright propaganda, it contains much that a full-time politician would consider irrelevant. I am not able and do not want completely to abandon the worldview that I acquired in childhood. And here comes the crux of it that is just so powerful. So long as I remain alive and well, I shall contain to feel strongly about prose style, to love the surface of the earth, and to take a pleasure in solid objects and scraps of useless information. It is no use trying to suppress that side of myself. The job is to reconcile my ingrained likes and dislikes with essentially public non-individual activities 
that this age forces on all of us. And of course, it's also so striking because Orwell's so often seen as Mr. Grimm, gray pessimism. There's one of the books about Orwell is called, you know, wintry conscience of a generation. And it makes him sound like some kind of bare withered tree. And of course, in a lot of ways, he's in full bloom. So this sentence where it's like, you know, I shall continue to feel strongly, to love the surface of the earth and to take a pleasure. Just those positive verbs, the sheer driving energy of that, that affirmation, that claiming of pleasure and joy and beauty, you know, and kind of a deeply eclectic personal kind of beauty and, you know, not nature, but the surface of the earth, um, not ideas, but scraps of useless information, um, you know, to take a pleasure in solid objects. He was a great lover of the tangible world as a way of grounding himself away from, you know, kind of tangles of ideology and assumptions and uh, generalizations and cliches. And uh, it's just a beautiful passage. And it really has been something I put at the front of readers when I made class readers to teach. I think I've had tacked up over my desk at various times. And, uh, you know, often the shorter version um, with less, less at the beginning or end. But it also speaks to being a political writer might seem very impersonal and dutiful. But what makes him a great political writer is that he's bringing this personal and more than dutiful stuff, this aesthetic sensibility, this personality, this individualism to the task and doing, making it something nobody else would do rather than just being another faceless toilers in the fields of lit or the fields of, you know, human rights and justice and whatever. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah. And that was such an interesting question. The whole Stalin's Lemons section was an absolute mess in early drafts of the book. And I had an interesting experience I also had with a magazine article I was writing about John Muir's racist for Sierra Magazine, which is that I knew that they needed to be fixed, but I didn't know how to fix them at the time. I, when I looked at them, I could not see any other way they could be. And it's always interesting to find out that a lot of what matters for writing is not, first of all, it's not typing as I had to learn when I started my first book and thought I should be typing all day till I realized, you know, at however many hundred words a minute, a book should take about, you know, a few days to a week if it was really just typing. But that really something's happening unconsciously. When I left the works, the chapter and the Muir essay alone, I was finally able to come back to them and see them freshly enough. I could see what was wrong with them and more importantly, see other ways to do them. But there's nothing really in that section that would give you a sense of it. But here's something that I think reflects just how much I had to gather together. A lot of pieces of Orwell from his essays, his novels, his letters, his diaries, and uh, to kind of get the picture of him I wanted to make. I love research, actually. I love that finding of patterns and making a new kind of coherence for yourself and maybe from others out of the scraps and fragments you've assembled. It feels like a profound task of kind of putting the world back together 
or rather finding the patterns in the world that might not have been revealed until then. So here's a few paragraphs. He would be from actually from Lilacs and Nazis, the third chapter of the first section. He would become immensely famous for sentences such as this one in 1984. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. He is much admired for sentences about the use and abuse of language, such as this from 1946. Political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable, and to give an appearance of solidity to pure wind. He was good at scorn, as in this pair of sentences from 1944, when he launched a minor campaign against the lazy invocation of jackboots, which actually I know because jackboots got invoked again uh, during the um, the 2003 war against Iraq. And I knew from Orwell that nobody actually knows what the hell a jackboot is. It's a cliche. It was a cliche in 1944. And 50 years later, they were still marching around. So he wrote, ask a journalist what a jackboot is, and you will find that he does not know. Yet he goes on talking about jackboots. But he also wrote sentences like these from the essay that prompted me to visit the cottage. In the good days, when nothing in Woolworths cost over sixpence, one of their best lines was the rose bushes. They were always very young plants, but they came into bloom in their second year, and I don't think I ever had one die on me. Or even this, in a letter from that April 1936 when he planted that garden. The garden is still Augean, and I always forget how to pronounce this word. I am classically a writer who learned lots of words from reading and I'm blank with terror when it turns out you have to say them aloud, Aegean. The garden is still Aegean. I've dug up 12 boots in two days, but I am getting things straight a little. In his writing, the hideous and the exquisite often coexist. When he went to Germany to report on the end of the Second World War, he came across a corpse near the footbridge that was one of the last unbombed bridges across the river through Stuttgart. He wrote, a dead German soldier was lying supine, another word I don't know how to pronounce, but we'll say supine for now, Across, at the foot of the steps. His face was a waxy yellow. On his breast, someone had laid a bunch of the lilac, which was blooming everywhere. And makes a picture and strikes a balance, that yellow face and those lilacs, death and life, the vigor of the spring, and the immense devastation of the war. So you can see I'm doing a bunch of things there. One is that I have this thread about boots. There's the jack boots, or rather the boots stamping on the human face in 1984. The Jack Boots journalists keep going back to, even though it's a bullshit term um, in 1944. And then the actual boots he's digging up, the physical, tangible boots he's digging up when he's getting his all the rubbish out of the garden he's going. And then also he's a great pairer of opposites. You know, I talked about the beautiful the perception of beauty in the washerwoman hanging out the diapers and singing and the comparison of her to, you know, a rose hip and why should a rose hip be less beautiful than a rose? Just as the thought police break in, Winston has that thought. And here we have a dead Nazi who's waxy yellow with a bouquet of lilacs. And I don't think a, a, a standard war correspondent would bother with the lilacs. It's Orwell saying the world is more complicated. This is a war zone. He's a Nazi, but maybe somebody loved him. The city is in shards. It's, you know, they dropped, you know, 
hundreds of thousands of tons of bombs on it, but the lilacs are still blooming. So bringing those things together took a huge, you know, was a joy, but also a huge amount of reading and collecting and putting post-its in book after book and copying things down. You know, it wasn't a struggle in the, I don't know what to do, but it was, you know, a significant endeavor of reading and trying to find the threads running through his work and a joy, I should add. Where do you write? Everywhere. I have always had a desk. I wrote in my previous, my last book before this, Recollections of My Non-Existence, about how my friend who was almost murdered by a man for leaving her gave me a desk when I was 19. That's still my writing desk. It has the monitor and, you know, the printers next to it, et cetera. But I write at the kitchen table. I write in an easy chair. You know, I write in bed and other I have never written in the bathtub, although I have read in the bathtub, and there are very few places I haven't written, airplanes, uh, et cetera, and um, so everywhere. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Outside, you know, the big world under an open sky and, um, you know, often being physically active. I'm a very mediocre gardener, but gardening, I have found like cooking engages all the senses and you kind of know what you've done. You've planted a rose bush, you've pruned the fig tree, um, which is very different. And I've written an essay. I don't know if my editors will publish it. If it, I don't know who will read it. I don't know what they'll think of it. There's, you know, or a book where it's like, you know, it may be years later that it actually has the effect you hope for. You may never know what it does in the world. You know whether or not people ate your cake and what they thought of it, and, uh, whether it whether it flopped or rose and came out. So, so sometimes to those very tangible sensory things, sometimes just to the kind of free movement in the open world. And, you know, I've also written in my book, Wanderlust, about walking as a way to do your thinking. And I'm very cognizant that also, because there's that whole writer thing, like you should write every day. And I'm always like, what is writing? It's, it's th- most of it is thinking before you write and revising and rethinking after you write. And, uh, you know, a lot of that happens when you're very far from your computer and your page and your manuscript. So sometimes, you know, walking is getting away or running or hiking is getting away. Sometimes it's, um, finding a new route into doing the work and ideas will suddenly occur that might not have occurred if I was staring at the screen and the manuscript. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I don't really have a lot. You know, I do sometimes have friends read it if they want to read it, but it usually goes straight to the editors. And uh, I haven't had a lot of, you know, those readers. And I often feel actually rather l- lucky that I went to a journalism school rather than a writing program and didn't live through workshopping because I think I would not have enjoyed hearing every, like, you know, lots of my peers opinions. And I feel like in some cases that can be very conventionalizing or based on other things like popularity. And I just read that horrific piece about the kidney donor and the woman who plagiarized her, which made me not enthused about writing groups at all. So really it just goes straight to the editors. And then it is a funny thing that your friends, you often feel like your friends and family reading you is like they're eating their spinach. 
whereas everybody else is actually buying your book or, you know, clicking on your, your article because they actually want to read it. So there's always that very odd thing of, you know, giving someone a book and being, but you don't have to read it unless you want to. How have you dealt with rejection? I think I was a very autonomous kid or a very isolated kid. So I was used to being unpopular. So I didn't really expect everybody to like me. And then of course I became a feminist and a political writer. So I knew that I would be um, at odds with some people. And I've actually had a pretty smooth path as a writer where I wrote very short things and then slightly longer things in periodicals and then got very ambitious and wrote a book proposal and then was terrified and realized that actually a book is, you know, can be imagined despite what I said at the beginning, you know, this was just to get me over the hump. And apparently Gia Tolentino found this very encouraging that if you can write an essay, you can write a chapter. If you just think of each of them as a, an essay that happens to, you know, build on and lead to, um, then you can write a book. And, uh, you know, and I've had various people reject specific things I write. And I have one unpublished book that was too weird for the world um, at the time when I wrote it, you know, 25, where, what year are we in? No, 30, 30, 30 something years ago, but mostly I found publishers for my work and then something, you know, and it hasn't been rejection per se. It's been, you need to work on this. This doesn't work yet. This is too long, you know, figure out what this is really about. And I've certainly done so much revising. And in a way, I think, again, what is writing? I think being an editor as I was for three and a half years after I finished my journalism program at Berkeley was great training in revision and learning how to cut and change and find the dead kind of the dead wood and you know the the useless stuff clarifying rewriting has been so important and I think being trained as an editor has made me not only sympathetic to good editors if you know still resistant to bad editors but able to do to regard that work which is sometimes done by an editor as something that the writer should do herself as well and, you know, so I turn in pretty clean first drafts and spend a lot of time cleaning stuff up. And The Guardian, the wonderful editors, Amana and Oliver and Claire and the rest of The Guardian are really used to me, you know, as my Harper's editors and other publications editors, my wonderful guys at LitHub, Johnny Diamond and formerly John Freeman, were of me saying like, I know you're working on it, but I just changed this and it's better. Can we... Can we make this paragraph, this one and stuff, you know, so I'm always kind of revising to the last minute. I think that's related to rejection, you know, where you're, you're like, this needs to be better. This needs to be clearer. This, we need to get this right. I was also trained as a fact checker. So there's another kind of rejection in holding yourself to high standards, you know, at publications like the New Yorker and Harper's, I got a lot of help with that, as well as with the cop, wonderful copy editors at Viking. And, um, you know, but where you're rejecting inaccuracies, rejecting, um, you know, vagueness, rejecting misrepresentation. So there's another kind of rejection that I would speak to with that question. And what is your favorite word? There's a, the word I probably most beat to death is lovely, which I think 
is a word straight American men are hardly allowed to use, although I know British men use it quite a lot and gay men have permission to do so many things. Even if they have to give it to themselves, that straight men don't give themselves. And I have joked that my tombstone could say it was really interesting and some of it was lovely, but it does feel like it describes a subtle elusive wonderfulness that might be beauty, might be pleasure, might be a kind of rightness, might be the production of delight. You know, it's it's a slightly elusive word what loveliness is, much more so than beauty or goodness or truth or something, you know, solid with square corners like that. And so I, I'm not sure, you know, because of course, 1984 ends with new speak, with, uh, you know, the attempt to winnow down the language so certain thoughts are impossible. And of course, I love English as a great commodious language full of synonyms and, and uh, you know, all the different words from great words from other languages, from raccoon and moose to jodhpur. And, uh, you know, jodhpur being from India, those first two ones, I think, being native. And... Um, so I could go on and on, but it's really the aggregate of language, you know, the sentences, the paragraphs, the books that bring the joy. Rebecca, thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative and I'm so grateful for our conversation. Thank you for so such thoughtful and insightful questions and a chance to explore them with you. My pleasure. And thank you, LitHub. Thank you, readers. Thank you, editors. Thank you, word lovers. Thank you, Orwell and his roses. If you like today's show with Rebecca Solnit, author of the nonfiction book Orwell's Roses, check out my interview with Kate Mann, author of the nonfiction book Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. We talked about women challenging men in power, Iris Murdoch, and not having a prescriptive conclusion to a book. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 320 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Evie Wilde, Susan Orlean, Charlotte Wood, Peter Ho Davies, and Jean Hanf Korlitz. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.